Welcome to Rethink Retail, the show where we dive into the stories and strategies behind some of the most successful brands on the planet. From brick and mortar giants to e-commerce disruptors, we uncover the secrets to their success and deliver the keys to true retail transformation. So ask yourself, are you ready to rethink retail? The future of retail starts now. Welcome to Retail Therapy, a Rethink Retail exclusive podcast series where we examine retailers that have a unique history, are making innovative changes to their business model, or are overcoming challenges in order to stay relevant in this highly competitive landscape. This week, we'll be looking at a retailer that needs no introduction. They've dominated the brick and mortar space for decades and are currently the largest retailer in the US. Presently, this retail giant continues to expand globally while making significant improvements to its e-commerce capacities and omnichannel transformation. That's right, this week we're diving into the complex history and evolution of Walmart. Checking in for today's session are this week's retail therapists, Michael Zuckor and Andrea Lay. Michael is a thought leader and a hands-on practitioner in building businesses for the global digital economy. Michael's experience spans key aspects of digital commerce, marketing, retail, and consumer strategy. He has more than 25 years of experience in digital commerce and retail, and has innovated new go-to-market activation marketing strategies and tactics for some of the world's biggest brands, FMCG, and retail companies. Andrea Lay is an e-commerce educator, advisor, and entrepreneur with over 20 years of e-commerce experience, including 10 years as a senior executive at Amazon. She is a founder and CEO of Alum Group, the leading educational provider on digital commerce for consumer brands, agencies, and retailers. Andrea is a 10-year former senior Amazon executive and led client strategy at IdeoClick, an Amazon-managed services agency. As a top 100 retail influencer and e-commerce industry expert, Andrea is a speaker at national e-commerce and retail conferences a podcaster with the CPG guys, a contributing writer, and is frequently quoted in the media. Nice to meet both of you. Good to see you, Ian. Nice to see you, Ian. Thank you for joining us on this uh, particularly interesting episode. Before we dive into today's therapy sessions, let's first begin by learning a little bit more about our patient's history and what got them here today. In 1962, Walmart was founded by Sam Walton in Rogers, Arkansas in the United States. And from 62 to 70, Walmart expanded rapidly, opening multiple stores in Arkansas and then also expanding into neighbor states. In 1970, they became a publicly traded company with stock listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Starting in the 1980s, Walmart expanded nationwide, opening stores across the United States and became one of the largest retailers in the country. And in 92, they surpassed Kmart to become the single largest retailer in the US. In 2000, they expanded their online presence and launched Walmart.com. And from 2005 onwards, became the largest employer in the world with over 1.6 million associates worldwide. In 2010, they announced their sustainability initiative, aiming to be powered by 100% renewable energy and producing zero waste. 
And in 2016, they acquired Jet.com, an e-commerce startup, to bolster their online presence and compete with Amazon. And two years later, acquired a 77% stake in Flipkart, an Indian e-commerce company, making its largest acquisition to date. In 2020, they launched Walmart Plus, their subscription-based service, offering benefits such as free delivery and discounts. And presently, they continue to expand globally, innovating in retail technologies and focusing on sustainability efforts, which brings us to today. So let's start off by discussing some of the factors that have led to Walmart's current state. Andrew, I'd like to start with you and just get a sense of your perception of who Walmart are and how they're trading at the moment. Yeah. Well, I think when I think about Walmart, I think about their kind of leading position in e-commerce grocery. My Obviously, my realm is is very focused on digital commerce and click-to-order. And the thing that I found most impressive about them in recent years is their penetration into online grocery. So they're currently at about a 25% market share of online grocery. They're beating Amazon. And that's a huge, hugely important industry as the shopper has changed a lot in the last few years. And you know, I think we've all seen a lot of data about e-commerce penetration and orders moving online and then orders moving back to stores. But one area that stayed pretty sticky post-pandemic was, was online grocery. So shoppers continuing to buy groceries online. Now, the lion's share of it is pickup for them. And that's actually great because that's a more sustainable model economically. So they're positioned well from a you know, future financial sustainability perspective. So when I think of Walmart, that's kind of the arena that I focus on because that's kind of one of the fastest growing areas for them is e-commerce and then grocery being such a huge industry for them. Yeah, I think the e-commerce side of grocery is fascinating. Certainly in the UK where I'm based, we see a lot of the grocers struggling with the the delivery side. So I think it's great to see Walmart are able to do the pickup in store aspect a little more. I mean, what's your take on them, Mike? How do you perceive what Walmart are doing on a commercial level at the moment? Well, this is a great patient to be talking about today. You know, as I see Walmart laying on our couch, I see a very, very healthy patient. I see a patient who's come a long way over the last five, six, seven years and has done a lot of work on itself, so to speak. First, in in consumer perception, I get the general sense that Walmart is no longer considered, you know, the shopping venue for only maybe the lower middle classes or for people who don't have a lot of money. You know, it used to be the industry joke about Target being Target and, you know, Target having elevated themselves above Walmart. And a lot of that was in their merchandising and how they marketed themselves and certainly the brand and creator collaborations they did. And I think Walmart's really caught up very well there. You know, I'm fortunate enough to live in a, you know, a nice upper middle class suburb of New York City. And most of the people in my town, including my family, uh, we shop at Walmart. You know, the stigma is kind of gone. There's a perception that the goods there are of, of high quality, that it's a great experience, that convenience. I think that's really where they've really helped themselves is it's just simply convenient to shop with Walmart. I mean, you know, that whole statistic about there being a Walmart within X miles of 95% of the U.S. population what could be more convenient than that? And yeah. now you add to what they've done online. And I know it's a question that we're coming to probably later in the conversation about how they've improved their omni-channel experience. Well, I think 
first, they had to create an omni-channel experience, and they were certainly latecomers to the game in providing that. But what I think they've done successfully over the last five or six years is they've graduated to a real unified commerce model. Not perfect yet, but the integration of the stores, you know, I just bought some fishing gear from Walmart a couple of weeks ago. Some of it, I was able to split the order and pick up in store and some of it they shipped to me and everything was perfect and convenient. And as we've seen them add, you know, a marketplace and adding, you know, a media agency and their own logistics, they've really matured into an ecosystem company. And I think that's what's given them the leg up to have these tens of thousands of stores plus a maturing ecosystem, plus overcoming the stigma. I, and I'll finish with this. I saw a great tweet the other day that a lot of people got a laugh out of, but a woman had posted that I like going to the dollar store to shop because I don't have to dress up like when I go to Walmart. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> So I think that speaks to you know the perception of the fun and ease and convenience of shopping with Walmart and the perception of quality goods has really transformed who they are. No, that's a great observation. And Andrew, you, I mean, you're both coming from the digital side, but I was wondering how much of this sort of general appeal and growth and appeal is the improvement in what they do. Do you think there's an aspect on the current cost of living crisis influencing this? Certainly in Europe, we're seeing people going to Aldi more or people are splitting their shops. So people will go to Waitrose, which is like the Whole Food equivalent and Aldi, you know, and they're splitting this. So Andrew, do you feel that the growth has, that Michael was alluding to here is all down to improvement in quality or is some of it down to the nature of the environment we're in where we're seeking more value as well? I think it's a few things. I think the shoppers changing, you know, the payments releases a great report every few months on the consumer sentiment around inflation and, and shopper behavior. And, and almost all shoppers report some reduction in spend in consumable categories. So, you know, Walmart is certainly a beneficiary of that, you know, given their value-based messaging, you know, and there, I think another thing that is pretty telling is the growth of their Walmart Plus program. So they're running around, I think a little more than 20% of US shoppers right now. And, and it's great because they've got, you know, online shipping, you can get stuff shipped to stores, and but they also offer gas discounts, which is another area where consumers are reporting. Consumers report feeling, according to the payments report, feeling inflation the most on groceries and gas. And those mm -hmm. are two areas that Walmart is playing in right now and promoting through the Walmart Plus membership. So I think that membership growth is pretty telling. And certainly they're benefiting from consumers trading down. We work with a lot of brand manufacturers and a lot of them are seeing, you know, faster growth, stronger growth with Walmart than they are with Amazon from an e-commerce perspective. So we know that they're gaining at least the digital shopper and maybe taking that shopper away from Amazon sometimes. Definitely. And there is always this comparison between Walmart and Amazon. And then they're big players, but they've, they're arrived from different areas. One was obviously a pure digital, one was pure physical, and they're now sort of adjusting across. Michael, how well do you think Walmart are doing in taking on Amazon, aside of the issues of just sort of engaging their customers? Because this constant comparison is always ever-present. Do you think they're doing a good job of this? Yeah, Walmart has been far more successful in transitioning to a multi-channel unified commerce world than Amazon has. You know, Amazon has tried everything from buying Whole Foods to Amazon Go. 
And we just haven't seen them succeed in the physical retail realm yet. Whereas Walmart obviously started with that huge base of physical stores, and they've been really successful in adding the digital and e-commerce element. So I think when we're comparing the two, we can say that, you know, in the merging of the digital and physical environment, Walmart is caught up, Amazon has not. So right there, you know, I would say advantage to Walmart. On the other hand, Amazon still continues to dominate share buy in terms of just pure e-commerce play. They've had a huge head start. And really where their head start came from was building their logistics and supply chain infrastructure, as well as their IT and technology infrastructure first. You know, I've often said Amazon is basically a supply chain company disguised as a retailer. You know, Amazon for all intents and purposes is not a retailer. And it's not a marketplace either, right? Years ago in our shop, we used to talk about Amazon in the same conversation with marketplaces. But about five years ago, we said, you have marketplaces and you have Amazon. And you basically need strategies for both. And the strategies for the two are not the same. How does Amazon differ from a marketplace then? Because they built the first fully integrated retail and e-commerce ecosystem in the U.S. It started right in retail. There are two great enablers to success and more importantly, to profitability, right? And that's the big conversation in e-commerce today is profitability. It's hard to make a profit. You know, on the surface, e-commerce is a crappy business model. And that's why integration is so important. But the tolerance that the company and investors had for Amazon to lose billions of dollars a year for the better part of 15 years to build that logistics and IT infrastructure is what gave them the moat and their natural advantage. I agree. I think there are a lot of Amazon could be considered a lot of different types of companies. I do think they are a supply chain company, and I I completely agree with what you're saying. I think they're also maybe, and maybe even more now than a supply chain company, they're a technology company. And I think one of the things that contributed to their moat was that they were treated like a technology company by investors and by Wall Street. Walmart's always been treated like a retailer that has Mm -hmm. to return profit margins. Amazon's treated like a Silicon Valley tech company that can lose money for many, many years before actually turning a profit. And so I think that also contributed to their moat, that they were given a really long leash by the investment community to lose money as a sizable business. I mean, I don't think that today's climate would support that kind of trajectory in a large company. It doesn't. I mean, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a lot of these ultra fast delivery companies quickly fold and go out of business, Mm -hmm. the Amazon FBA aggregator space. You know, you can even look at some of the non-commerce examples of companies that have, you know, that have faced too much pressure and, you know, haven't survived. So I think that's another important piece of the moat is that they have been treated like and behaved like a tech company. In today's highly competitive retail landscape, personalization has become a key revenue driver. Almost three quarters of consumers now expect personalized interactions and more than three quarters are frustrated when this doesn't happen. Retailers need to deliver more robust sensory experiences and personalized customer service and evolve with personalization, seamless purchasing and intelligent store experiences. Beyond just personalizing the shopper experience, elevating the shopper experience relies on smarter, more connected stores, unified commerce across diverse channels, smart advertising solutions and seamless customer service. 
Microsoft Cloud for Retail can help you evolve and elevate your shopping experience. We're excited to tell you about PayIQ's state-of-the-art payments intelligence solution that grants us access to untapped first-party data for all previously anonymous customers. Every time a customer swipes their card in your store or online, rich SKU-level data is captured and added to a customer profile. These profiles are built from consistent payment data, meaning you get detailed insights into the omnichannel purchasing behaviours of every card-paying customer. Learn more at pay-iq.com. Absolutely. And then, you know, we can further the comparison with that they've become a media company. So if we look at, you know, the share of e-commerce purchases and then the share of media, I mean, that's the other big story with Amazon. Look, Walmart wasn't blind to it. They certainly built their own media arm. But if we look at Amazon still, I mean, dominates, you know, you could take the next 10 retail media companies and stack them up. And I don't think they'd reach the revenue that Amazon has. So that's where they've really dominated too. And it's part of the flywheel and it's part of Amazon's virtuous cycle. You know, promote your products here, sell your products here, ship them easily here. I think if we want to step away from the differences, though, one thing that the two companies have in common is that they are highly consumer focused. You know, Amazon has been famous and talked about for you know, a decade and a half that, you know, nobody else matters for Amazon except the consumer. And it's really true. The decisions they make, you know, don't generally benefit the brand or the seller or the service providers. It really, in the end, benefits the consumer. And I think Walmart has had that in their DNA since their founding and have continued and built on that strength. Andrea had uh, mentioned the importance of the Walmart Plus membership. Walmart just announced that they're offering a $49 membership for families who are living on government assistance. So, wow, that's a tangible as well as a real message sent that, you know, Amazon is in it for everybody. And if you look at... Could you just briefly explain what that offer is to anyone who may not know what it is? Sure. So, you know, Walmart Plus is akin to, to Amazon Prime. It provides you with all sorts of benefits, discounts, you know, it's your membership program. It's what really ties you to Walmart. And it's grown incredibly fast, as, as Andrea mentioned. And it's really becoming a pillar strength of the company. And they understand that Prime was one of the drivers for Amazon. I mean, it's really look at why consumers, you know, I can speak for myself. My God, you know, click and two days later or a day later and my product's here. Who doesn't love that? You know, we right. love that. The brands might not love that because of the costs involved in logistics, et cetera, but we love that. And so Walmart Plus was set up to rival Amazon Prime. So what they've done is they've now offered a $49 membership to families on government assistance. So yeah. it's, you know, it's really going to help people. It's going to give people who are really affected. You know, we're talking about inflation. I certainly think Walmart has benefited from inflation and the economic troubles of the last year and a half. But look, Walmart's been around through every bull and bear cycle of the last 70 years, right? And they've remained who they are and they continue to grow. Um, I think what's different is in addition to the people who are turning to Walmart to trade down a little bit, they're actually generating organic growth from people who don't necessarily need to trade down without yeah. losing focus on the fact 
that there are people who need them for their everyday low prices. And I think you can see that through some of their assortment strategy and really kind of expanding, particularly in the beauty and healthcare spaces, bringing on some more exclusives. And and also you can see it a little bit in the fashion space where they're driving a pretty hard influencer strategy, you know, to try to drive traffic to some of their private label fashion. So yeah, I I would agree with you, Michael. I, I think they're benefiting from the consumer maybe trading down and looking for more value, but I think it's also intentional and they're looking to capture that market share from Amazon and from Target, maybe. Definitely. I mean, I wanted to just touch on the social media aspect as well, which is increasingly important now for commerce and retail in general. I mean, what are your thoughts on how Walmart are using social media channels to add extra value to what Michael refers to as the unified commerce offer? I think they're still in the early stages there. What I like about what Walmart's done over the last five to eight years is they've not necessarily always innovated, you know, improving the consumer journey and the path to the journey. And But what they have done is they've reacted to what they've seen in the marketplace very, very well. And I think we've covered a lot of the examples of, you know, what Amazon has done and how Walmart has kind of followed suit. I think that the Walmart people are getting there. They've really made a huge commitment to live streaming, which I think is something that's gone a bit under the radar, but they're really making live streaming a big part of what they're doing. I think they're very well aware of the power of social commerce. They're looking at what's happening at TikTok. They're looking at what, you know, Timu entering the market and going from simply selling cheap stuff to setting up a marketplace. I think they're aware of what Xi'an is doing as well, coming in and building a marketplace. And they know very well that those companies are going after some of their core consumers. You know, when Timu, you go to the front page and it's advertising, you know, a rain slicker for six bucks and free shipping, that's a hard deal to pass by on a lot of people. And so I think what they're seeing is what we're seeing is this reaction to, you know, I think there's going to be a fundamental change in the next couple of years of what social media is. And I think there's going to be a fundamental change in the understanding of the power of social commerce. The West has been very, very slow compared to the East in adopting social commerce, right? What we've tried to do collectively in the West as retailers and as tech companies is we've tried to awkwardly bolt commerce onto social media rather than building commerce slash social from the ground up. And that's what Chinese companies like Pinduoduo and Timu and Xi'an have done so very well. They started out by saying, we are a commerce company that is going to achieve big things through social environment. And so yeah. I guess I'm kind of getting ahead to one of our questions is what Walmart should be doing in the future. You know, having a, a laser focus on those threats from below and from beyond the borders and adopting social commerce is going to be important to them. Which, by the way, is something that Amazon has not really done very well at all either. And I think there's a huge opportunity for Walmart to grab the lead on there. Definitely. So what are your thoughts on the social media aspect for Walmart then, uh, Andrew? I would agree with Michael that I don't see Walmart being sort of an innovator in a lot of spaces. They're a fast follow. They're kind of a me too. I do think from a social media perspective, they've done, they've made a lot of strides in terms of enablement. 
And so like the content creator program they just launched is an enablement program, right? Like it's making it easier for influencers and for both macro and nano influencers to promote their products on their Mm -hmm. behalf. And I think that's what we should expect from a big retailer, right? That isn't maybe as trend forward or as, you know, maybe isn't as fashion forward. I do think because the lion's share, it's more than like 60% of their sales are consumables. Those are really tough categories from a social media perspective. We just were working on a social commerce course right now. And so we just did some interviews with, with the head of social commerce for McCann and some other thought leaders. And, you know, the consistent message we heard was that it's working really well for beauty and fashion. And Walmart does have a pretty big beauty business, but it's really hard to think about like, how would you create an influencer's strategy or a social Mm -hmm. commerce strategy for you know, for pop tarts or like for toilet paper, or there's some categories that just yeah. don't lend themselves super well to True. that type of engagement with shoppers. So I think they've been, they've had a nice focus on enablement, but maybe less of a focus on innovating versus when you look at a retailer like Target and they have a much smaller percentage of their sales that are consumables and they do a lot more on the fashion and exclusive beauty side, you know, mm-hmm. they can be in a position to be more innovative. They've done some really cool stuff like Best of Target and there's some social media influencers that seem to work for Target or at least be strongly affiliated with them that do a really nice job kind of mm. featuring what's in store. Okay. There's one of the things I found interesting, certainly around the consumable side in the UK, we have Marks and Spencers, who are one of the biggest food players and they're also in fashion. And they've used TikTok to activate staff from an engagement point of view phenomenally successfully. And I saw a presentation from a director at Marks and Spencers, and it was incredible to see that they would just send out every month four topics for the staff to work on. And that was the only guidance from head office. And the store staff would just do these proactive posts. One of the stores in Northampton in the middle of the UK, this guy is getting one, two million views every post. And they now have a cardboard cutout of him in the store because people come in for selfies with him. And on his day off, they have a selfie with a cardboard cutout. So it's quite interesting that. It's almost like the personalities of the staff in the physical store that are gaining the engagement whilst promoting products. And it was a really interesting approach. And, and I don't know whether you've seen anything of how Walmart or any of their competitors are utilizing that sort of approach rather than the obvious social commerce side of just pushing products. Have either of you seen anything like that? Not from a sales associate perspective. I think there's some other great examples of retailers doing that, but more squarely in the fashion space, like Anthropology has a few store accounts where the stores like the store associates are posting content and it's really cool. And they've got some neat followers and engagement on that. You know, Nordstrom has been doing those store associate like quick videos of all of the products, uh, which are hugely helpful and and I would imagine help a great deal with conversion. But I haven't seen Walmart doing anything from a store associate perspective. Have you seen anything in that area, Michael? Yeah, I mean, this is, I hate to sound like a broken record sometimes, but they've been doing this in China for more than five years, where the store associate actually becomes a live stream on site. And especially over the pandemic period, store associates quickly transition to salespeople and guiding people with the online stores for these retailers. They become somewhat famous personalities in their own right, like your gentleman from from Northampton. But what this really speaks to is what I you know alluded to earlier about the fundamental change of the role of social in retail and commerce. 
I think it's going to become much more diffuse and user generated. I think it goes hand in hand with my belief that the the marketing and sales funnel, as we've known it forever, is shrinking in relevance rapidly. You know, I had always thought that the marketing sales funnel was a product of the Mad Men age, something that somebody in the 60s on Madison Avenue came up with. And I did a little research on it and found that those models were actually established in the 1880s. So we have a retail and consumer world that's still using a model that is, you know, 140 some odd years old. I tend to think of the the consumer journey now actually being more of a dot and circle model. So if you imagine a big circle with a dot in the middle, that's your consumer. And you need to be radiating information from all 360 degrees of that circle to them mm-hmm. and allow that I dot like that. to radiate information 360 degrees back out to the circle. Yes. That's the consumer journey. And Ian, I think your example of the Northampton guy is mm-hmm. a perfect example of that I'm also working with a company right now that is a platform that allows influencers to go to stores and to scan the tag on the product. And while their 100,000 followers are watching their video, the product automatically comes up on the screen and the followers can buy. And so the influencer now is not just an influencer, the influencer is actually the retailer, right? So instead of being paid to promote a product, get a commission from the retailer or the brand for features. So these are the type of things that are happening in general. And I think that's where the trend in digital is going towards this diffuse, you know, dot and circle model of the consumer journey. I love that analogy. I know we've talked about that unified aspect before. Um, It's great to see. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Andrew? Could you see Walmart adapting to that in the way they're doing things at the moment? I love the way you describe them as like a fast follower rather than an innovator. And I think you both alluded to that. You know, could you see them grasping those sort of ideas and using them successfully as a business? Or is that not really their style? I don't think it's their style. I mean, I see them doing a lot of like small scale experimentation, but I think it's really challenging for them to innovate and to experiment because of their scale. Like it's just so difficult. And I think they also always run the risk of alienating their current, you know, their enormous customer base. So I think it's hard on a lot of fronts for them to really innovate, but I do see them being a fast follow. And while I haven't read anything about it, I would imagine that they're fairly focused on how they're going to incorporate AI into their site in search, because I know Amazon's working on that. And as soon as Amazon does it, they're going to do it. There's this great book that just came out called Winner Sells All by Jason Del Rey. He's a Vox media reporter. And he did this whole, it's an entire book about the Amazon v. Walmart kind of trajectory is the wrong word, but like the evolution and Mm -hmm. how both companies have been shaped by one another throughout the years because Amazon was Mm -hmm. so worried about Walmart and did things with that in that context. And Walmart has been very much me too and copying a lot of the things that Amazon's doing. And I look forward to the last question when Michael and I get to talk about what we think some things we think they should be focused on. But I think one of the you know, we tend to see Amazon more on the innovate side and then Walmart more on the see if it works and fast follow. And based on Amazon's last earnings call and some things that Jassy talked about related to generative AI and incorporating that into the search of the website. And then just from personal experience of how transformative that experience is and how much better it is from a product search perspective versus just like typing search terms 
into search boxes, which I think we're all going to laugh at in five years that we used to do that. I do think that they'll be focused on that. And there are a lot of ways that retailers are incorporating generative AI into search, right? Even right now, Instacart's working on that, some others. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some innovation there, but maybe more of like a copying strategy. In today's highly competitive retail landscape, personalization has become a key revenue driver. Almost three quarters of consumers now expect personalized interactions, and more than three quarters are frustrated when this doesn't happen. Retailers need to deliver more robust sensory experiences and personalized customer service and evolve with personalization, seamless purchasing, and intelligent store experiences. Beyond just personalizing the shopper experience, elevating the shopper experience relies on smarter, more connected stores, unified commerce across diverse channels, smart advertising solutions, and seamless customer service. Microsoft Cloud for Retail can help you evolve and elevate your shopping experience. We're excited to tell you about PayIQ's state-of-the-art payments intelligence solution that grants us access to untapped first-party data for all previously anonymous customers. Every time a customer swipes their card in your store or online, rich SKU-level data is captured and added to a customer profile. These profiles are built from consistent payment data, meaning you get detailed insights into the omnichannel purchasing behaviors of every card-paying customer. Learn more at pay-iq.com. Brilliant. Um, I just wanted to touch on something you picked up on earlier, Andrew, where you were talking about how Walmart have been very successful because they allow what we call click and collect or pick up in store rather than trying to do the delivery. Because I've always scratched my head about grocery, particularly grocery delivery, because no one makes money at it 24 hour later, never mind 30 minutes later. What's your view on how they've been able to develop this very successfully, where they're almost utilizing the physical estate to make their e-commerce more profitable in that respect. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the more they can drive to click and collect, the more retail media advertising dollars they can generate from the manufacturer community. So that's huge. I mean, they're already like, I think they're like a plan to be like a $3 billion ad platform this year. And to Michael's point, they are a media network now. I mean, they Mm -hmm. are an ecosystem. They have an ecosystem. And so it behooves them to try to drive shoppers to that experience. They've also been able to do fulfillment from the stores for the ship to home stuff. So maybe lowering their cost structure a little bit there relative to someone like Amazon. But I think with, you know, the, the shoppers starting their journey online, like we know that only around roughly in the United States, around 20% of sales are happening online, but 80 to 90% of sales are digitally influenced. And so the yeah. shoppers beginning that journey online and Walmart's, I think, has done a really nice job in the last three-ish years of making that experience really frictionless for the shopper, mm-hmm. maybe not necessarily inspiring the way you would see at a retailer like Target, but definitely frictionless. And so, you know, it's a lot easier for the shopper. It's a convenience yeah. play, right? To create the order online and then just go pick it up while you're there. And the data on buy online pickup, it shows that more than half of the shoppers pick up the order, park the car and go into the store anyway. So you still get it's a, a footfall driver into the store as well, isn't it? Yeah. Respect. And no one really knows why the shopper does that, but there are a lot of, lot of theories. My big working theory as a parent of children and shopper myself is that you don't want to spend time in the toothpaste aisle, like get your stuff that you need done <laughs> and be efficient about that. And then use that time, 
you know, for something that's a little bit more inspirational. And Target said on their earnings calls, more than 60% of shoppers come in store. And because Target's fun, I don't know what Walmart's numbers look like, but but on on the whole, it's more than half for all retailers. So, and that's great for Walmart, right? Like you get the shopper engaging with the digital experience and then engaging with the stores and it gives them an enormous competitive advantage over someone like Amazon, yeah. you know, because they're engaging with that shopper in an omni-commerce way. Yeah. I wonder if a part of that is also because we're humans and we're like impulsive and forgetful and spontaneous. Yeah. Well. There's this a survey, I think it was Acosta that did it, that came out. It was like, it asked the shoppers. One of the things was like, I forgot something. You know, mm. they asked the shoppers why they go into the store. It was, a, but it was a really small survey. And one of them was, I forgot something. One was, I just wanted to see what was in there. That was actually the biggest one. I just yeah. wanted to see what was there, right? Exactly. I don't want to miss out. It's like FOMO. I don't want to miss out on anything. Yes. Yeah. And they're, they're mostly very big stores as well. So there's plenty to see. As Michael says, you know, with these fishing shopping expedition, you know, it's, it's not just groceries that you can get there. I mean, what's your view, Michael, how they're sort of developing the e-commerce side? Because as Andrea says, you know, grocery, maybe 20% is online. It seems to be a slower growth sector for conventional e-commerce, even though we went through COVID, where it's a category we have to buy, otherwise we die. It's like quite literally. But it, it didn't boost, seem to boost e-commerce, you know, deliver to home. And what are your thoughts on that, particularly around grocery and how it may relate to it? I think the big change in the e-commerce environment today, and it's something certainly that I work on with all my clients is shifting the mindset from product market fit to product channel fit. You know, we talked about earlier that it's hard to sell Pop-Tarts and, and oranges through social media, certainly. You know, I think Walmart will attempt to continue to do, as all retailers and online sellers should do, is to think more deeply about what to offer in each channel. Some things make sense. So, you know, the play has largely been in the past I'm going to put my entire assortment up through every channel and make it available everywhere. And I want to be ubiquitous and I want to make sure that it's convenient and all with good intentions, right? In service of convenience and customization and consumer centricity, we're going to put the whole assortment up. I guess I think the big change now is better understanding what to offer in what channel, what to offer through social commerce, what to offer in the store what to offer through Walmart Marketplace versus walmart.com. And they've got a lot of brilliant people there working that out. So I think that's the thing. Listen, the bottom line is for anybody, whether you're a Walmart or you know, a D2C startup, you know, the profitability issue still comes down to two things, your cost of consumer acquisition and your cost of logistics and delivery. They're your two biggest profit suckers. And so... That's why, you know, getting channel specific and really focusing on what to offer where becomes more and more important. You just, you know, look, when the money was freely flowing from, you know, VC backed startups, profit wasn't an issue. Profit's now an issue. Making money is an issue. And, you know, there are just some products that were not meant to be delivered. You know, ordering a 10 pound bag of dog food or cat litter online is just not economic for the seller. I mean, it might be great for you and I, but that's where you say, look, you know, we're going to give you an incentive to come in the store, you know, come buy your cat litter here and we'll give you a 10% coupon for anything you want to buy online. So I think for Walmart, you know, and look, at the end of the day, Walmart is, you know, in some ways a follow fast company, 
but they are also the industry standard company. You know, I mean, every other retailer still looks at them and says, what are they doing? And what can I learn from that? And so I think if they move more quickly to get better at channel specific product offerings, that's going to help a grow e-commerce for them and in the US overall. I think part of the issue with somewhat stagnant e-commerce growth today is two things. The wrong assortment being offered through e-commerce channels, number one. And number two, with all the trillions of dollars that have gone into developing e-commerce over the last decade and a half, there's essentially one thing that hasn't changed, right? The great irony of e-commerce is the actual experience of shopping online. It's still a flat screen, two-dimensional, scroll and click experience. I mean, how is it possible that 20 years later, I mean, look, the graphics are better. Yeah. But is experience really any different? And so again, part of this change through social commerce and e-commerce and what I think is happening right now is e-commerce is going through the disruption that e-commerce forced on retail 15 years ago. E-commerce is its own disruptive mode and it needs to shift to more immersive commerce, better integration of content, commerce and community. And you know a more three dimensional shopping experience online. Otherwise, I have a hard time seeing commerce break through. You know, ever getting past the twenty five percent total sales yeah. mark. That I, I thought you were about to take us down your favorite rabbit hole, the metaverse, for a moment, Michael. Well, no, um, I, but that's an interesting evolution of the e commerce, and it is more immersive, isn't it? Yeah. Well, listen, my stand on the metaverse has not changed for the two, three years everyone's been talking about it, which is this. Forget the metaverse, okay? The metaverse is a macro change that's going to happen in the way we all experience our screens, okay? And that's being developed by thousands of companies and hundreds of thousands of people. What you should be engaging on today is immersive commerce. How do you use live streaming? Oh, I like that, Michael. Yeah, this is what it's about, right? So. 3D products, live stream, QR codes, almost going back to more gamification, right? What's going to grow e-commerce is immersive commerce. And part of immersive commerce are virtual environments, right? So while everybody got scared of the metaverse because they thought they had to build something for a universe that didn't exist yet, and nobody could prove you could sell anything in it, what I directed my clients to do was build virtual environments. And so we did something called the Juicy Verse for Starburst. Awesome. If you guys want to check it out. Also, cool. I would recommend going to Kiehl's and entering their virtual store on their website. Just an absolutely amazing. So that's what I'm saying is, you know, and this is where Walmart and Amazon, I think both need to catch up is mm-hmm. how do you implement immersive commerce? Because shopping on Amazon is frankly no different than it was 10 years ago. And that's not going to be sustainable for them. So immersive commerce, content, community, commerce, that's what's going to grow the space. Fantastic. Well, we're sort of running out of time. So I better leave things with the question that you're both itching to get to as well, which is really thoughts on sort of any changes, developments or new ideas that Walmart really should or could consider for the future. I'll start with you, Andrea, if that's okay. Yeah. Well, I think one watch out for them, I think, is the marketplace. You know, they it's certainly been a part of their strategy to copy and focus on areas that have been successful for Amazon. But based on what I'm seeing as an outsider and hearing from the manufacturer community, it's like they didn't learn anything from Amazon's mistakes in this area. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, it's a relatively unpoliced marketplace. You know, they've got over 100,000 sellers on there now, and it's creating a lot of difficult dynamics for their suppliers. In addition to that, I think we're in a different environment than we were when Amazon launched their marketplace and grew it. You know, back then there wasn't a lot of policing of that type of activity. And they were given a lot of grace because they were the first ones doing it. And there isn't that much grace now. So, you know, if we're selling, if sellers are selling counterfeit product or lookalike product or, you know, borrowing trademarks or selling things that are hurting people or that are controversial, Walmart's going to get a really, is going to be under a lot of scrutiny for that. And the repercussions are significant now. So I wonder if they've, I mean, I get that it's a growth driver more, you know, that's part of Amazon's flywheel is more selection is more traffic is more, you know, suppliers and and more better economies of scale and better terms and more retail media dollars and all of these things. But I feel like they should slow it down a little bit and just be a little bit more thoughtful about what they're building. Because in Brad Stone's book, the Amazon Unbound, the second one, he talks a lot about the marketplace on trajectory on Amazon and how it surprised even like the most senior executives at Amazon. And, and it was true. It did surprise a lot of people. And it became this sort of unwieldy thing to manage. And then it becomes such a part of your business and your growth and, and your sales that you can't turn it off. So you have to figure out how to work with it. But it's really difficult. It creates a lot of challenges for the supplier community. So I think that's something that I'm, I'm really concerned about with them. They don't seem to be, you know, they seem to be going full steam ahead on that with their foot on the gas. And then I think other areas that I would be really interested to see them focus on, we already talked about around generative AI and building that into the experience online. I think that's like a part of an immersive experience. To your point, Michael, I loved what you said about immersive experiences versus metaverse, because I think when we all think metaverse, we think, you know, Roblox and Oculus and all these technologies that, according to Scott Galloway, make us look really stupid when we wear them. And so we're going to have a slow adoption rate, which I love that. POV from him. He's like, if you look ugly doing it, you're not, people aren't going to do it. But I like that idea of immersive experiences and figuring out more ways to have immersive experiences. Like Google's doing some cool stuff with like scene detection and, you know, image search and maybe Walmart figuring out some ways to do that within their e-commerce site, as well as incorporating some generative AI in the search. Brilliant. Thank you. And how about you, Mark? I know you, you mentioned your unified commerce. Is there anything else that you think Walmart should be considering now? Yeah, first, I just got to comment on Andrea quoting Galloway on it. You know, if you look ugly or stupid, it just made me think back to the disaster that was Google Glass, where people were being banned from bars and clubs and public spaces if they walked in with Google Glass. And some people were just getting randomly punched in the face walking down. (laughs) So that's a human nature consideration, isn't it? Yeah. I, I don't think people want to spend hours and hours of their time by going shopping by covering their faces. I mean, that's no, a, no, a behavioral no, consideration no. behind um, the technology. And that's, you know, again, that's the beauty of immersive commerce is it doesn't require any equipment and it does all the work. You know, instead of making the consumer do the work, you're doing the yeah. work for them and you're entertaining them. I mean, look, at the end of the day, shopping is entertainment or, or it should be a large part of it. Right. You know, retail has its own version of Laszlo's hierarchy of needs. And I think Walmart, you know, has their own version of Lazo's hierarchy of needs. And I think they're reaching the top of the pyramid, right? So looking to their future, it's okay. How do you develop full self-realization, right? That's the top of Lazo's pyramid. And I think they're getting close to that. I think there are a couple of, you know, not so sexy things we want to talk about in terms of their future. I think diversifying their sourcing base, 
I think they need to develop that a little bit quicker. You know, it's still basically 70 to 80% what's on the shelf in a Walmart largely comes from China. You know, I think there are macroeconomic and macro geopolitical issues that, you know, need to influence that. You know, last week they did announce their open call to find American manufactured goods. So for people who are not familiar with the program, companies are asked to apply to Walmart say, we're making our goods in the USA. And then a certain number of them are chosen and actually put on the shelves in Walmart. That's good. It's a step for diversification, but really not just Walmart, but you know, it's the big manufacturers who sell to Walmart that have to take the lead in sourcing diversification. So I think that's one thing and, and kind of on the back end, thinking further and improving logistics and really thinking more re, uh, holistically about supply chain logistics and fulfillment, because you know that is the cornerstone of growing that that unified commerce ecosystem. So on the unsexy side, you know, kind of on the consumer facing side, focus on making the physical store experience fun. And when we talk about immersive commerce, people often think that that's only digital. It's not. Immersive commerce takes place in the physical realm and it takes place in the digital realm. And if you do it really well, you're connecting immersive commerce both from the store to the screen. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, continually updating the stores, making them more interactive and more tech enabled, that's fun, right? I still thrill walking into a store, a really big store, whether it's Cabela's or Walmart, and just being surrounded by 250,000 SKUs of stuff. You can't replicate that online because you yeah. have to physically scroll and click. You just can't replicate that. Yeah. Okay, but don't rest on your laurels there. Tech enable the store and make it fun. So focus on you know store tech, and then I think continue building the unified commerce that the system that they're building, and then also like I said earlier, focus on the development and, and make sure they're staying abreast of e-commerce is actually in disruption now, and they can't just you know rely on the static e-commerce model they've built thus far and need that's where they do need to innovate or follow really fast but overall our patient is healthy i think their mindset is good their prognosis is good now they just need to work further on that self-actualization and the doctors are are happy at this point brilliant well thank you both (laughs) for the annual checkup good to know and i'm sure their insurers will be happy as well so thank you very much for joining us uh this week both of you you provided some fabulous insight on a brand that we know very well, but giving information that may not be obvious to everyone. So thank you for joining us on Retail Therapy and thank you to everyone for joining us this time. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at Rethink underscore Retail and show some love by subscribing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.